Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. I'm Farah Bostic. I'm dressed like Generation X. And today, it's not just the two of us. You're so lucky, audience. We have a very special guest today. We have uh, from Pew Research Center, Kim Parker has joined us. Kim, how are you? Hi, Adam. I'm good. Thank you. Excited to be here. Kim, we are going to jump into some announcements that were made by Pew that you helped create and publish. Before we do that, can you give people a little bit of your background and just the work you do? Sure. So I'm the director of social trends research at the Pew Research Center. And in that capacity, I work with a team of political scientists, demographers, economists, sociologists, and we sort of study the big ways in which the country is changing along demographic lines and also the broad social trends that are emerging and how those things kind of all come together to tell the, the American story. So it's a fascinating place to work and lots of interesting topics to explore. Yeah, I mean, Pew is an invaluable resource to me as a researcher, as a planner, but also as a, someone who's curious and just likes to know things and the data I've always found there. So I know for Farah and I, as we've as we jumped into the understanding the millennial myth and the work that we've been doing for the past year, we have been leaning pretty heavily on Pew. We have a Google Doc that is just full of Pew links. So we, we couldn't have gotten as far as we've gotten without without the work. So we were um, celebrating out in the street. <laughs> when, when, we saw the, when we saw the announcement that we made, Farah had sent it to me on Slack and we were like jumping for joy. One other thing I should mention is that Pew is nonpartisan, non-advocacy. So we are just in the business of creating a foundation of facts to inform the public and help decision makers make sound decisions. So I think that's a really great thing about working here as well, is that we come at the research in a very objective manner. We don't have any policy goals or anything like that. We're just we're just in it for the research and and the data collection and the storytelling. And I think that's that's my one training new strategists and new market researchers trick is when you're doing your desk research, just start by searching the Pew site because <laughs> they've probably already looked into this. Um, but also that that fact of Pew's orientation is that you do feel like you can re- you can rely on that data more than political polling, which you always have to kind of say, well, <laughs> you know, which um, you have to go look at the five. 38 scorecard, you have to go look at you know all of the other things in order to figure out how you really want to assess that research. And I think the other thing that's been interesting for me, my, my orientation is more as a qualitative researcher, is it's clear in the work that there is a combination of both quant and qual at play in the work that's mm-hmm. being done, and a tendency to look at broader systems as well, not just at, you know, what what did people tell us in the in the survey. So yes, so we, we do have a Google Doc full of, of Pew links. I always have Google Docs full of Pew links regarding of the project. But I think, yeah, the, this announcement from, from you and from Pew was really, like I think I said to one of your colleagues, this is as close to breaking news as our little podcast was probably ever going to get. <laughs> because, it. you know, what, what we've been doing, even as we rely on reputable sources who have been using generations as, a, as an analysis tool, 
there are still those moments where you're looking at it. And one of the things I feel like you guys do as well is these great like interactive tools as well, where you can kind of dra- drag a slider across. There's, there's one we looked at that was like this. And it was like, I know the exact one you're talking about. This little thing bumped at this point in time. And well, let's quick look up like what were the top headlines of the day a, a few days before that, a few days after that, and figure out what was going on in the world. And so you could look at it and say, well, because millennials, which I think a lot of people in the marketing world fall victim to, that the the frame for analysis becomes the explanation of the data when it's just a frame for analysis, right? just a bucket we can sort things into. And so we've been playing a lot with looking at that information and going, well, if you're about five years old, when uh, the financial crisis happens, and your parents lose their house for the first time, that's when you're going off to school. And then you're about 13 years old, when the next big shock happens, and you're about 15 years old, and the pandemic hits, like, yeah, you'd probably have some feelings of anxiety about a great many things, right? But is that because your generation Z? Or is that because like, things keep happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so seeing this post was like, huzzah, like so, someone else has sort of said, like, may- maybe there's limited utility in the use of generations as frames. But before I, I don't want to get out over my skis on this, I think one of the things that I'm most interested in about it is, how did this even come to be? Like, it looks like there was a project you were looking at that you went, maybe we should take a look at this again. And then you spent a year looking at it. So tell us about what prompted it and and how you went about that kind of reassessment. Sure. Yeah, it's an interesting story, I think. And and you guys will think, but I don't know if everyone would agree. But (laughs) they're listening to this, they probably will think. Yeah. Yeah. So as you know, we've done a lot of research on millennials over the years, and it's been a, a very popular topic on our website and just seems to resonate a lot with audiences. Some people love it. Some people bristle at the labels and that kind of thing. But it it does sort of looking at things through generations sort of helps you see where we are as a society and how things have changed because change can be gradual. But if you can group people into cohorts, you can sort of see, oh, this is what life was like for this group. And now it's like this for this other group. So that's how very loosely we have found this to be a useful and interesting lens to use for storytelling over the years. But we knew there was another generation coming along after the millennials. And we thought we're going to want to be able to understand them and make a contribution to that conversation about Gen Z. So we thought, well, first of all, millennials, like generations tend to be 15 to 20 years in length. That's how they've been defined. So we thought we're coming towards the end of millennials. The Gen Zs are coming along. We ought to think about just for practical purposes where we want to make that cut point, even though we know these cut points are not scientific, they're not exact, but we need to know when we're going to start defining people as millennials versus Gen Z. So we kind of made a decision about that. And then we realized, well, the youngest Gen Zers are going to be entering adulthood and we'll have enough of them to be able to start studying them as adults, even though, you know, a significant chunk are still, we're still children and teens. So before we dove into that, we thought, let's take a look at how we can contribute to this conversation in a meaningful and responsible way. Because over the years, since we've been looking at generations, which goes back really to studying boomers and Gen Xers also, the field has become very crowded. As you have referenced, a lot of marketers use these terms. People use loose definitions of them. There are stereotypes that have come up around the groups that that can 
impact people in a really negative way. It's just mm-hmm. taken on kind of a life of its own that doesn't really align with our values about how to do research. So we thought if we're going to study Gen Z, we need to be able to make sure we have the appropriate data so we can say these differences in this generation are meaningful because they're a generation, not just because they're young. So one important methodological consideration for us, we've been collecting survey data since the late 1980s. So we have a lot of data where we could actually compare young Gen Zers now to millennials when they were that age and even to Gen Xers when they were that age. In an ideal world, we would be able to do that. But in our survey collection methods, we've switched from telephone surveys to online surveys, which is a change that's been made sort of across the field by most pollsters. It's more affordable. It's a better way to reach a better sample of people. There's all kinds of reasons for making that change. But one wrinkle in that methodological change is that people answer questions differently depending on the mode of interview. So when you're talking to a live interviewer, especially if it's on a topic where it might be a sensitive topic or something where there's a socially desirable answer, you might be inclined to answer one way versus when you're doing the survey on your phone or on your desktop computer in the privacy of your own home, you might be able to be a little more honest. So there are things called mode effects. So we needed to find out whether we could use our data from the late 1980s and 1990s and compare it to our current online surveys. So we did a mode experiment, did parallel surveys, one online, one on the phone, and then compared the results. And we found that on some of the measures that we were most interested in trending, there really were significant mode differences. So that sort of ruled out the possibility of doing this comparison, which we had wanted to do, of young Gen Xers, young millennials, and young Gen Zers all across our phone, you know, our long history of survey data. Or Kim, were you considering like a uh, transcription and a sort of a data comparison of the voice received, the phone received data points that you had from Gen Xers and, and that older generation, and then comparing that to what you had from online responses? Yeah, and just the raw data, it's it's set up the same way in a giant spreadsheet, you know, mm-hmm. we use different computer programs to analyze it. So it's not even transcribing things from voice to numbers, we actually have the numbers. It's just that we know the responses are a little bit different when we made that break in methodology. So that's that's kind of a very inside baseball, but that's one aspect that was going on. So we wanted to figure out, like, can we really use this old data to make these comparisons? Then at the same time, there was kind of a little bit of a groundswell of criticism about generational research coming from the academic community. And we were aware of that. And we were actually called out in an article by uh, a friend of the center who's a sociologist who sort of questioned our use of these labels and whether we should continue to do it. And so we thought, well, while we're doing this experimenting on our methods, let's also listen to some experts, proponents of generational research and critics of generational research and see what they have to say. So we took, you know, a solid year bringing in experts, some of whom had criticized our work, others who really love generational research. I'm sure you're familiar with Jean Twangy, who's written a lot about iGen slash Gen Z. And we spoke with her and we spoke with Bobby Duffy, who's written a fantastic book about generational research, and he does it with kind of a comparative global perspective, which is really interesting. And a few political scientists, we talked to some reporters who find this to be a really interesting storytelling tool and a good way to explain change to the public. 
a way that people can see themselves in the data. So we, we listened to all these different voices and perspectives and kind of synthesized all of that. And then just sort of took stock of where we were and where we want to be in this space going forward. And so in our recent set of releases, we outlined some principles that we want to make sure that we adhere to, most of which we have adhered to in the past. But I would say the biggest difference, the biggest break from our past reporting is that we're no longer, when we get a new survey back and we just have that one point in time, we're going to look at age differences, but we're not going to look at generational differences because we can't really know if the differences that we're seeing by age are rooted in generation or if they're rooted in the life cycle. In other words, like, is it, are young people less likely to say they're going to vote in this election because they're young or because there's something unique about Gen Z? So that was one of the biggest changes, I think, from our past work. And the result of that is that you might not see as much from us about our regular survey findings broken out by generations, but we'll still be talking a lot about age because age is one of the strongest predictors of a lot of attitudes, behaviors, and all kinds of you know interesting things. So we'll still be looking at that. And then there are opportunities where we can do generational research, but we'll need to have historical data so we can really make sure that we're looking at groups at a similar age so that we can assess whether there's a generational impact or not. That was a very long answer to your question, but that's the, the process that we went through. We love it. Dude, <laughs> can never be long or thorough enough. We we're, we got the right people for this. So thank you. Thank you for that thorough background. Sure. I think one of the things that comes up in there that I think we have talked a lot about as well is this kind of <laughs> the, the way that the narrative has also shifted over time has a lot to do with well, this cohort has aged, right? So they're in a different stage of life. They're experiencing different things. Um, they're not 16, 17, 18 anymore. They're 38, 39, 40. <laughs> and so that just means they're going to be dealing with different things, have more experience, you know, have been through more. One of the things that happens when we interview sort of subject matter experts on other other things, we've, we've talked to a person, um, Christina Blacken, who's an expert in narrative intelligence and does a lot of DEI work and leadership work. Um, we've talked to him a name being a Shah, who's been a kind of growth marketer in a variety of companies. Both of them are millennials. Both of them are women of color. And one of the things they kind of keep talking about is like, hey, the things we have in common are these big kind of not, not just milestones, but these kind of giant events, right? So 9-11, the financial crisis, the pandemic, and so on. And so those are things we have in common, but we've gone through them in various points in our lives where we are also different ages and have different responsibilities and all of that going on. I, I'm, I'm curious about how – one of the things I've, I've also found in – this is true in qualitative recruiting is it's way more important to me to know your life stage than your age because a 24-year-old with a one-year-old at home and a 34-year-old with a first-time child one-year-old at home have a lot in common, right? And ordinarily, we might stick them in different buckets. And so for qual, that matters for me because I might be asking them about having children, for example. So I might care a little less about which side of the age bracket they're on. How are you thinking about some of these other factors? I know you kind of allude to it in, in the announcement that there are other explanatory effects and age and life stage often kind of run in tandem to each other, not always perfectly. And also, I think those things are shifting out as people delay marriage and childbearing and those kinds of things. But maybe talk about some of the other factors you're finding more useful to the storytelling and analysis. Yeah, definitely. So there are so many things at play, obviously, and you alluded to them. There are, you know, societal shifts, seismic historic events or technological revolutions that impact people across the 
life cycle. And those are things that we call period effects um, and academics call period effects. So a good example of a period effect is the Watergate scandal. So for those who can remember, that impacted trust in government forever, really. Like it just, trust in government plummeted after that scandal, never really rebounded fully, still hasn't. And that affected people across age groups. So it didn't necessarily have an outsized impact on one group or another. It was a period effect. It shifted things downward and they've kind of stayed there. But there are other things called cohort effects. And I think you kind of were alluding to this, Farah, that do have an outsized impact on one group or another. And there's a very old example of that, which is the Great Depression. So coming out of that, people who were coming of age during that time had an orientation toward government because government came in and really saved the country. And there were all of these new social services, the social safety net, all of these things that evolved out of that and, and very positive views of an activist government. That generation of people carried that allegiance to the Democratic Party with them for decades. So that was just something that really stuck with them. Whereas I think older generations at that time didn't have quite that same reaction Mm -hmm. to that series of events. So those are things that we want to control for when we're trying to determine if there's a generational effect going on. And there are ways that you can control for those factors statistically, which are complicated but doable, that help you really identify, is it a cohort effect or is it a period effect? Or, or another thing that happens is there's demographic change, as we know, through the years, really since immigration policy in this country changed in the 1960s, We've got more Hispanics and Asians who've come into the country. The non-white population has grown a lot. And so that's impacted younger generations more than older generations. So sometimes when you see differences among young age cohorts, that might be driven by demographic composition of that age cohort versus a generational aspect per se. So yeah, there's, there's so much going on. And I think a lot of people who just want to slap that generational label on a finding don't take the additional steps to be able to say, like, we really know this is something unique about a generation. Because I think there really are unique experience aspects and characteristics to generations. But you really have to take the additional steps to kind of tease it out and figure out whether you're saying that really responsibly or are you just saying it because it's going to resonate with your audience or it's going to help draw in certain people that you're really interested in reaching, if that makes sense. Kim, you mentioned that earlier, you, you mentioned that journalists love using the generational labels as a tool for, for contextualizing stories for people. And I agree. But I wonder in the clickbait era, if the reliance on, oh, this like, not that they're trying to trick people, but it's like, ah, this is a shorthand that I can use. This is about millennials, so therefore people will put it. How will – so you've been doing research that essentially gave those people a quick resource for them to have some data point, whether they used it responsibly in all cases, not always. Some people use it extremely responsibly. How do you think – as you're making an announcement like this where you're not going to report on generations in that same way, have you thought about the knock-on effects for those journalists and for – you know, the larger journalistic outlets that do rely on the data that, that you provide and, and the role and responsibility of Pew? We have, and, and we know even like my colleagues on the internet team who study the ways that Americans use technology, the internet, social media, et cetera, and they do a lot of 
looking at that by age because age is a huge dividing line in technology use. We bookmark their links too. Don't, yeah, don't their, their stuff is great. <laughs> and they've done a lot of research on teens and technology and also looking at young adults and older adults, et cetera. And they hardly ever or never use generational the generational lens or labels to report out their stuff, but it often gets translated into those labels when reporters are writing it, writing it up. And, you know, that's their prerogative. They're totally, they could do whatever they want with our data, but we just want to set the tone ourselves to say like, we're, look, we're looking at this through age, but we do know that sometimes people will then translate it into, we're looking at teens and young adults. They're going to put the slap, the Gen Z label on that. And you know, if that's useful for their reporting, that's fine. But we're just not going to do that as much unless we, as I said, can really go back and make the comparisons to other generations when they were the same age. And I guess as a follow-up, I one of the values of Pew Research, and this is true of Pew Internet as well, is, is the it, it's not truly a longitudinal study, but I feel like when I'm in your universe of research, I can go find another study and I can figure out how the two studies are related, connected, how the data connects to one to the other so I could get a better context for, for what you did over time. The logical question would be, if, if you don't plan to report generations in these broad buckets anymore, how are you thinking about that historical data that you've captured and either leaving that where it is or are you going back to that data now and resorting or doing anything with it based on age breaks or based on new point of view that you have? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. We're not going to go back and change any of the work that we published previously. We stand behind that work and we feel we feel good about it. We feel like we did it. We did it well and with the best tools that we had available. We can still trend things over time by age group. And I think we'll do that. So if we see that even say you're looking at party identification and we want to look at 18 to 29 year olds today and how are they different from 18 to 29 year olds you know, 10 years ago, we can definitely do that. And we will do that. So that can be interesting to see sometimes, or maybe say views on gun control measures. We might, this is hypothetical, but you might see that young adults views have changed more than older adults, maybe because young adults have sort of been at the forefront of a lot of the news and experiences around gun violence in recent years. So we would definitely still do that. And I think that can be really valuable. And we also, you know, we really want to encourage our colleagues across the Pew Research Center to experiment with different types of cohort analysis. So looking at groups of similarly aged people, but not necessarily defaulting to the commonly used generational labels. So maybe, you know, we could look at the group of young adults who came into the labor market in the post-recession era mm -hmm. and Great Recession and compare their experiences in the labor market to young adults who came into the labor market at different eras. Or I'm really interested in the post-pandemic generation, you know, young people who were either going through their educational period then or entering the labor market then and how are their experience is different. So you could group them in different ways, not just call them Gen Z, but but look at a group of maybe people who were like in a five-year span of coming out of out of COVID and how, how did their work experiences differ from others when they entered the labor market. So I think there's a lot of creative ways you can use cohort analysis. It doesn't necessarily have to be using those commonly used labels and generations. And political scientists do this a lot with looking at, you know, groups of people who were first eligible to vote in this election versus that election or, right. you know. So, yeah, there's mm -hmm. different different ways of doing it that can be really valuable. I think that's one of the things that as we've been 
kind of, un, you know, our, I, I don't know, how, I came in a little bit late, <laughs> but I don't know how much Adam was telling you about. We kind of started with this, well, we started with a conversation about maybe we could do a podcast about millennials. And then I had a million years ago, right around the time the book came out, got my hands on Howen Strauss's book, Millennials Rising. And so I had read that about the time that it came out when I was a, a, a baby ad person in an ad agency in LA, <laughs> and then kind of, you know, watched it shift over time. But one of the things that was interesting in that book was that they, they had sort of preemptively declared that that cohort would be, you know, 1980 to 2000, 2002, basically was was their their definition of the thing. And they they have a whole sort of thing where they think the generations should generally be 21-ish years long and whatever. <laughs> you know, they, they've made that decision. Then I think I came across something, and you would probably know this better, that the only sort of census-defined generation is the boomers. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that kind of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's like 46 to 64. Is that, mm -hmm. is that the yeah, that census right. defined? Mm -hmm. And in a way that makes sense. It's sort of like, there's your great post-war economic boom, right? Like it's basically end of World War II, start-ish of, of Vietnam. And that's the, those are the bookends. And so that, that's where, that's where we kind of do the measuring there. These other cohorts are a little fuzzier. It's harder to say when did that generation begin or when did, you know, when's a good cutoff. And we've even seen over the last few years the move to like back up the end of millennials to like 96 so that mm -hmm. you might at least have some memory of 9 11. You know, you might have been yeah. in kindergarten when it happened. And then, you know, some of these, these kind of massaging of, well, what are the bookends of Gen Z going to be? I think what's interesting is, you know, what you were just alluding to there and what you talked about in, in the, in the piece is this idea of grouping them relative to their age during key events or key innovations. Do you remember a world before the iPhone or not? <laughs> you know, yeah. do you remember a yeah. world, uh, where your parents had a landline or no? Sadly, I don't know if I told you this, Adam, I had to get a landline because I live in a place with very terrible cell service. Yeah. And so <laughs> you're the, the last moderate cord cutter who hasn't had a landline since. I don't know, 2004 <laughs> had to get a landline again. It makes me very angry. <laughs> no one has this phone number. I only use it to dial out. And when the phone rings, I get very upset um, <laughs> because that should not be happening in my home. <laughs> but anyway, not what you um, so, so I'm curious about some of those things that you're interested in now as bookends. Like what, what are the kind of good bookends for millennials? Is it, is it context dependent? Do you have kind of a sense of if you were going to create some sort of um, guardrails around it where you draw them? Yeah, I mean, it's so tricky. And this is where we feel a little, not cringy, but just a little like we didn't really ever set out to be the definers of the generations. But we do have this one piece on our website called where millennials end and Gen Z begins, because for practical purposes, as I mentioned earlier, we felt like we had to draw that line so we could start to understand Gen Z. And we do put the end of millennials at 96, and then the first Gen Z was born in 97. But ironically, in my own household, my three kids, my oldest is a millennial, my two youngest are Gen Z, and they're all within a few years of each other. So that I don't really think of them as being in two different generations. So that just speaks to the point of how, you know, there's so much blurring across the lines. There's so much diversity within a generation. And sometimes as my, you know, my millennial is the youngest you could be and my Gen Zers are, you know, they're, they're so similar to her. So that's just to say, like, you know, these things are very fuzzy and not meant to be you know, scientific in any way. Interesting thing about the boomers, in addition to the kind of historical 
bookends that you put on it, that's also a demographic, a, a clear demographic phenomenon with the fertility boom after the war and then the invention of the birth control pill, which kind of brought that to a, a screeching halt. And so there was this baby boom and that's why it's called that. So that's really interesting too. And you don't see those demographic drivers necessarily for the other generations in terms of the way that they're grouped. So I don't know if that helps answer your question. I know with Gen Z and the work that Jean Twangy has done on that generation, which she often calls iGen, you know, the iPhone launched in 2007 when the oldest Gen Zers were 10 years old. So that has really been a part of their existence, defined their existence, the way that they interact with the world. And, the, and then, you know, social media coming online shortly after that, that is really a defining characteristic. And millennials adapted to that obviously quite well, as have other generations. But for Gen Z, that is just, that's their connection to the world. And I think that, you know, as Jean Twangy, I think would argue that sets them apart in a lot of ways and has had repercussions for socialization and mental health and all kinds of other things. So yeah, it's a tricky business trying to, trying to create or delineate these boundaries because they're not really real, but they can be helpful in terms of being able to understand how our country's changed and, and grouping people together by common characteristics, experiences, attitudes, historical events, etc. So one of the things that I'm curious about, this just I'm, this is not on our list of questions, Adam, but just as she was talking about it, th there is now kind of an internet joke of how yeah, there, there's like a, <laughs> I think it, it may have actually appeared on a like a local news roundup where they were like, the v relative population sizes of the living generations. And so it's got the greatest generation, baby boomers, millennials, Gen Z, and Gen X is not on the list. <laughs> <laughs> and and this has become kind of the running joke of it's the it's the generation that everyone forgot as a generation and you know the the one of the things that seems to be certainly this is extremely present in Strauss and Howe's work is a real feeling that and they're, they're explicit about it they basically think of Gen X as an unwanted generation and millennials as a wanted generation and the reason for that is the birth control pill and I guess no fault divorce. And those two things are why Gen Xers weren't wanted and, and millennials were. Um, <laughs> or it could just be like, you know, like I'm at the sort of tail end of Gen X and my brother is at the beginning of, of millennials. Same parents, both boomers. It just it just fell that way. That's when yeah. they got pregnant. <laughs> I'm not unwanted. <laughs> I hope. Anyway, I should check. I should go ask my mother. No, I know for sure that that's not the case. But in any event, the thing that's interesting is this sort of sense that, and, and we've talked to people who work in marketing that like, oh, Gen X is just so much smaller of a generation. And it's not so much smaller. It's a little smaller than its predecessor generation. And then, you know, millennials are a little bit more than Gen X. And then you see sort of similar kind of ups and downs. Right now, it looks like Gen Z is closer to what Gen X look like, which arguably makes sense since their parents are more likely to be Gen Xers. But in any case, like, do you have a sense of I don't know, my explanation is just like people have a lot of anxiety about fertility rates. And so they get kind of overwrought when they seem to dip and exuberant or overwrought, depending on their point of view, um, when they start to tip back up again. What's going on with all of that? Why, why do we kind of skip over Gen X, think of it as an unwanted generation? How did that, how did all that happen in your <laughs> view. I don't know. I'm I'm in Gen X too. I'm like at the upper, upper end of Gen X, older end of Gen X. I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of a funny thing. We haven't written as much about, 
I mean, whenever we do our generational analysis, we obviously include Gen X and they are kind of in between. I think the boomers were an outsized generation in many ways and just kind of legendary in terms of their youth and the way that they're often talked about and portrayed. And then some people call millennials the echo boom generation because they are the children of boomers. So I don't know, there just does seem to be a certain fascination with those two generations. And I'm not sure exactly why there are a lot of people in leadership roles in this country now who are part of Gen X. I mean, it's a very influential generation at this moment, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't always get its due. Yeah. I mean, my joke is always, if you pull, if you just kind of did an age check on most of the LPs on Sand Hill Road, they're they're Gen Xers. (laughs) They're they're firmly Gen Xers. The boomers have retired. (laughs) Not all of them, but many of them have. It is interesting how you you, you talked about, you know, journalists or whomever are going to use this data, how they're going to use this data. But there are these fascinations with the names of generations and also using them as a narrative device to talk about how the world is changing or how people feel about a thing. And I think one of the things we've been trying to kind of unpick and unpack over our collaboration is that it did start out extremely optimistic about millennials. The mm-hmm. next, gen- next greatest generation is sort of a lot of what was being said at the beginning. A lot of optimism about them. And then they kind of hit the workforce and then there's the financial crisis and then, and then, and then, and now it's the number of um, things that millennials have killed um, because they're not doing it on time or not doing it enough. Like the, the field is littered with the bodies of industries apparently that millennials have killed. <laughs> Do you have a sense of about when that shift happened? It, you know, are we pegging it right as being around like? 2007 to 2010 that we suddenly decided that maybe millennials weren't all they were cracked up to be when they were young and full of potential. (laughs) Well, I mean, if that's the case, that's very unfair because if you think what happened in 2007 to 2010 was the Great Recession and and we know that the job market was so hard then, particularly for young adults. Unemployment rates were very high among young adults. That's when we started seeing a lot of young adults either moving back in with their parents or not moving out of the family home, mainly for financial reasons. So yeah, I don't think it's, I think it was more circumstances and economic cycles that you know, might have, and I don't know if the optimism might have been misplaced too. I mean, where was that really coming from? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I know when we, our very first. That's a very Gen X thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> our, <laughs> our very first study of millennials, we called them Gen Next, N-E-X-T. Right. Yeah. And that was in 2007 and they were 18 to 20. The oldest millennials were 18 to 25 then. So that's kind of funny. And then with the Gen Z, like just to talk about the naming a little bit, our first look at that generation, we called them the post-millennials. And then we noticed that there were all these different names kind of floating out there for that generation. And so we actually looked at Google Trends to see which was kind of the dominant name, which was being used the most. And and that's when we could see that Gen Z was really emerging as the name. But again, the naming and labeling business is really tricky as well and not something that we want to be at the yeah. forefront of. <laughs> well, we, we've been doing these little kind of flash poll things, mostly to get Vox Pops and, and things like that. But one of the questions we ask them is, uh, which name for the generation do you prefer? And one of the options is, I prefer no name for the generation. And that <laughs> yeah. is, that's the winner um, every time. That's funny. And then the other thing that seems to happen is, if I have to pick a name, I'd rather it's not a knockoff of the generation before. So mm-hmm. yeah, give me my own name. Y. 
right after Gen X. And but I guess enough time has passed that it's okay to be Gen Z because that's not like it would be worse to be post millennial, I guess. Right. Um, (laughs) Well, and we also know from our research that a lot of people don't know what generation they're in. Yeah. Especially if they're in the you know, kind of in, on the border of one or the other, or yeah. they might not be familiar with some of the names. And so as much as it seems like this big thing that everybody adheres to, a lot of people are not really thinking that way or even even aware where they fall. Yeah, we've we've seen that too in a couple of things that we fielded where 22-year-olds think that they're millennials. Um, <laughs> and, Everybody's a millennial. You know, 44-year-olds yeah. <laughs> might think that they're Gen X. So, you know, it, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but I do wonder if people uh, people on the edge, you know, if that same 44-year-old five years ago would have said, oh, no, I'm a millennial. But as they bought a house and had a child, they said, oh, no, now I'm a Gen Xer. Like, mm. I wonder to what extent they say, oh, that's the older generation. And they subconsciously slide themselves forward into that. I have zero data to validate that idea, but I just, I wonder if people really are not connected to what generation they're in in a lot of cases, if they're just sort of making it up to help frame it for people. Yeah. And that would suggest that people, some people might see generations as a stage of life. You move from one to another as you hit certain milestones, you know? Yeah. And I don't know if that's the case either, but I wouldn't be surprised. I think we see it a little bit in marketers who continue to think of millennials as being under 30. <laughs> yes, they're still the NFL. TV Millennials audience. have just become a synonym for young and right. shifting them off of that looks like it's a little bit of a project. I think some of them also don't want to admit that their children are fully grown now. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I think like, I'm just thinking of my parents who are in their 80s and, you know, so they've heard a lot about millennials over the years, but I don't think the generational conversation was as robust before millennials came online. So they probably don't even know what the other intervening ones are or what Gen Z is. They might just equate millennials with young people and not have noticed that that was, you know, 20 years ago. And now, <laughs> you know, millennials are in their 40s, etc. So some millennials. Anyways, it's interesting. That actually makes me think if people that are not part of this work or part of this industry are, you know, so disconnected from it, then then that makes me think that could be a driver for the shift in the narrative, Farah, that it's not that they were saying, oh, millennials were this, and now we're saying they're that. They were this great hope, and now they're killing everything. It could just be replace the word, find and replace millennial, those young people, which those stories we've seen since the 1880s. Those young people are not Mm -hmm. hitching their horses correctly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that is certainly that sort of disconnection from it is interesting. And yet at the same time, we keep hearing a lot about from millennials rather about like they're very clear on kind of the tropes of the story as told in the in the media not not that's not the kind of work that you guys are doing but we we jokingly said we should have in retrospect called this podcast avocado toast which was an early suggestion as a name for the podcast but at the time we thought how long are we going to spend talking about millennials turns out a long time because it's such a it's such a kind of thing that feels like a marker because there's so many articles written about it and then millennials don't have you know aren't buying houses because they're spending too much money on Starbucks like that that kind of story became so entrenched that if you know nothing else about what it is to be a millennial you know those two things and and you've heard that story and then also you know the kind of concept of being a digital native and those things feel really kind of 
enough embedded out there in the kind of cultural zeitgeist that people accept it as true about themselves and about what the generation sort of stands for. And I guess I'm curious about, are there things that stand out to you as being, one of the things you mentioned was those kind of technological innovations and, and historical events, but there are these kind of cultural turning points too, where, you know, it, it, it's hard to say when did the shift happen exactly on, for example, people's attitudes towards uh, the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, there's an explanatory power in will and grace changed everything, right? But, <laughs> but like, is that it? Is there something else? H- how do you begin to kind of unpack those things as you open up the aperture beyond generational cohorts to take into account these other, these other effects of, of period? And yeah, yeah. The same sex marriage example is a really interesting one to me. And I still kind of wrestle with untangling it because young adults have always been at the forefront on that issue in terms of greater acceptance, but the whole population has shifted to where we now have a majority of Americans in favor of same-sex marriage. So we've seen, you know, it's not necessarily young adults changing. I think it's a, it's a matter of exposure more and awareness mm. and a certain progressive open ideology that that young adults tend to have more on some of these issues. But then it all, like they, I don't know if they pulled along the older generations or if the whole, I think it's the latter, the whole society has shifted on these issues with greater awareness of, you know, prominent people coming out as LGBTQ. And then now we're seeing sort of on issues of transgender adults and gender identity. Again, young people have much different views from older people, but that's another one where I think the whole society is shifting somewhat. Although our data on that is mixed because, yeah, that's a complicated topic. Mm-hmm. Um, things sure. aren't changing as quickly as they did on same-sex marriage when it comes to some of the transgender issues that we've studied. But yeah, so that's, I think, a combination kind of of maybe cohort and period effects, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an interesting one because you see the age gap consistently, but you see everybody's everybody's views changing and becoming yeah. more positive. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to ask about sort of uh, on a kind of practical side, because, you know, working more on the marketing and market research side of things, you know, as I said, I have generally resisted saying we recruit by age. We we recruit by a multitude of factors, not just by for, for qualitative, um, not just by that. When we do quantitative segmentation studies, you know, my partners and I always sort of agree that even if a client asks us for like, so how do millennials feel about whatever the category is that we're studying, that we don't really give them that. <laughs> <laughs> that instead we give them more meaningful segmentations that are built around some combination of demographics and behavior, or demographics and attitudes. What are some things that, you know, if you're nevertheless, of course, the pull still exists because you, you know, as you alluded to, there are a lot of people in the space writing books and giving talks and um, hanging out sort of uh, proprietary studies of millennials attitudes to sustainability or or um, DEI or whatever. And so this is right. now the the segmentation we should use when we're studying something in, in the sustainability space. What would you what kind of advice, I guess, would, would you give to practitioners who are trying to sort of even if you still have to give them the one slide that's like, okay, here's the generational breakout on question 14, like there's, there's a, how do they start thinking beyond generations as the explanation for differences in groups when looking at any particular topic? Depending on data availability, you could give them both and you could say like, 
here's how boomers are, but if you break them up into early boomers and late boomers, you can see that they're really quite different, or you can see that early boomers are really very similar to Gen Xers. So you can kind of educate them in that way, but also provide them with, you know, both sets of data. So that's one way to do it. Another thing I think is important to and useful for understanding attitudes and behaviors is sort of looking at intersectionality. So looking at age and gender or age and party ID. So sometimes we'll look at, because we know that young adults tend to identify more strongly with the Democratic Party than the Republican, but it's interesting sometimes to look at, well, among Republicans, are young adults similar to young adults who are Democrats or are they more like their older Republican counterparts. And there you can kind of identify areas. So if you were doing, you know, work for a political client that was a Republican, you might want to say, like, you you should know on this issue among Republicans that young adults really stand out. Maybe it's an environmental issue or something like that. And some, sometimes that's interesting than just looking at age altogether because there are these other factors that are, you know, on, especially on policy or political issues, party is always going to be such an important dividing line and not just on policy issues, but really on everything now, topics that we study around family. And we just did a study on DEI in the workplace, huge party differences on those issues. So Hmm. I think, you know, being able to look not just at age, but age in relation to other key factors or determinants can be really helpful. And I think would be really useful for clients or people, you know, designing messaging, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Are, you know, you brought up some of those other parties is another traditional segment or a division that's been used a lot. And so you've you've essentially knocked down the walls and said, OK, we're looking at a whole new world of how we're going to do this analysis going forward. Are there other segments or divisions that have been sort of traditionally considered that you're looking at differently or relensing or? Not really. I mean, I think we've all, we always have looked at party and gender and ideology, education, income. Those are all huge, you know, factors, demographic and political factors that we always consider. Generations kind of stands apart from those others. I can't really imagine reimagining the way that we look at party. Like we don't really break out political independence because our own research has taught us that most political independents lean one way or another. So we'll do rep, lean, rep, dem, lean, dem. And then there's a small group that, you know, kind of refuses to lean. So that's a change that we made, you know, years ago. And and many people do still break out independents. But yeah, the other categories are pretty stable, I think, and, and pretty meaningful, whether it's education, income. There, We have made a, a shift. This is kind of another inside baseball in the way that we look at income groups. So we have lower, middle, and higher income, and we adjust that to household size and locality so that it makes it more meaningful and more transferable from one individual to another. Because we know that if you have a certain income and you live in San Francisco versus Detroit, that's not going to mean the same thing. Or if you live in a household with five people versus living alone, the money's going to go a lot further if you live alone. So we make adjustments to income when we talk about income tiers, which I think not everyone does, but I think it makes it more meaningful. We literally just had to do that for for a study where it was about maternal health actually, but because it was a national sample, it was just like how far $45,000 goes in Oklahoma is different than how far $45,000 goes in New York City. So you mm-hmm. make you make some adjustments. You can't just have a kind of natural cutoff of like, well, they just can't afford this thing if it's below 45. It's like, maybe they can. <laughs> and, exactly. and we also we also know from technology purchases that people who on paper can't, af- can't afford a thing will choose to spend their money on that thing because it's valuable to them. Mm-hmm. And, and we saw that in how like, 
the digital divide played out of like lower income households and, and households of color having fewer laptops, you know, internet connected laptops, but having more smartphones, which was great for a long time until we hit the pandemic and yeah, um, school, online learning yeah. program platforms don't work on the phone very well. <laughs> yeah, school doesn't work that well. The, the other thing that's interesting there is just like adding more layers of subtlety and, you know, getting a little more complex about how we're looking at things mm-hmm. to get clearer about what we're actually seeing. And I think one of the things you talked about at the very beginning of the conversation was also the idea of, you know, oversimplification and stereotypes about the generations that might actually prove to be harmful. Can you talk about how these stereotypes prove to be harmful? Because I think sometimes we just think, oh, it's a cute BuzzFeed listicle, <laughs> you know, like, who could it hurt to talk about millennials in this way? Yeah, well, I mean, they can be annoying slash harmful. Like, in some ways, they're just like, people don't like them, and they just make their eyes roll. But that's not <laughs> necessarily damaging. But um, there's one thing that my colleague, Mike Dimmick, who's actually my, not my colleague, my boss, the president of the Pew Research Center, he released um, one of these when we when we kind of talk, released our decision. He had a blog post where he talked about ways that, which I'm sure you guys saw, ways that people, things that people should keep in mind when looking at generational research. Yeah. And one of the things that he pointed out was that conventional views of generations can carry an upper class bias which is something that people don't talk about as much. But I think with the sort of marketing and the hype around generations, that's it's snowballed a little bit. So, and even he uses the baby boomers as an example that they were, you know, as a generation deeply opposed to the Vietnam War out there protesting and all of this. But it, it was actually the case that a lot of surveys at that time, including I think surveys by the Gallup organization, showed that younger Americans were more supportive than older generations who'd lived through previous conflicts and had a different mindset and context for that situation. So I think that's an example. And I think that then he also points out that stereotypes of Gen Z might be skewed towards experiences of upper middle class kids, which, you know, again, could involve use of technology, access to technology, social media, those types of things. So I think, you know, I don't know if that's damaging to individuals. Maybe it is, but I think it's, it's damaging to the broader dialogue and conversation and people's understanding of what's really happening. So it's just something to to be aware of. Yeah. My last question for you would be kind of, what do you feel like this decision opens up for you and your team? What what are kind of the new opportunities? What are you excited about um, in this in this shift? There are a couple of things I'm excited about. One is sort of counter to our decision, which is I'm excited to still do generational research when we can do it really well. Mm. And my team on social trends is uniquely positioned because we do a lot of work using census data and using historical data sets. So we really can go in and look at how generations are experiencing family life and how that's different, how millennials are different from Gen Xers, boomers, and and the silent generation before them, or or how how earnings or wealth differ across generations. We can do that using government data and we can do it really well. And I think, you know, the longer our online panel is in existence, 10 years from now, we'll have 20 years of of online data collected and we can start to use that too to do generational research again on on our survey data, which I think will be great. So I'm excited about those possibilities, but I'm also excited to explore new types of cohort analysis, which I mentioned earlier. And, And, you know, maybe my colleagues on the politics team will experiment with grouping people by their around political socialization when they came of age politically. My colleagues on the religion team, you know, we've seen huge changes in religious affiliation over time. And we know based on our analysis of data from the general social survey, which has been collected over many years, 
that there is a generational impact there. So this younger generation really is oriented towards religion differently, and they're really interested in that, but they might look at it by birth decade as opposed to generation. So there's all kinds of possibilities around that, which I think is really exciting, and, and I don't think that you know we'll be walking away from this type of analysis altogether. So I'm happy about that. That's great. Kim, thank you so much for making time for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I love talking to you all. This was super interesting. Thank you for reaching out to us. Excellent. <laughs> thanks for thanks for validating all of our complaints. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> We did it. We did it. That was great. That was fun. That was. Did you uh, see my Slack message to you? No, I didn't. Didn't see. <laughs> I was like so. Fo- oh, the cat. Yeah, I did see the cat. Yeah. So I have a story about that, and I, I, I went back and forth about whether to say anything to her about it because who the hell knows? I don't. This has to have been like 2006 or 2007. I was at Holland Partners. I know that for sure. And I was doing some desk research. I found a Pew Research deck like a, an actual presented deck, not just like um, the PDFs that they put up on the, on the website. It was like yeah, a yeah. conference deck that got posted on SlideShare or something like that. And like slide two, where the speaker introduces herself and says, you know, I'm so-and-so from the, from the, the, the Pew Institute, like had the, the Pew Pew meme cat on it. Oh, really? And I was like, I love these guys. <laughs> <laughs> They're actually people. Yes, I was like, this is this is where I fell in love with with Pew, um, and also it's where I really felt like, gosh, you know, if there was ever going to be a research organization that actually understands millennials, it would be the one that has the Pew Pew cat meme on the second. I think so. Slide. I think so. Did you? So you just essentially you did a millennial stereotype there? Is that what I, I did. just heard? I yeah. did. I did a classic. You know, the millennials and their love of memes. Are you ever going to um, learn? Are you ever no, going to learn? No. No. And, and as, as a cusper, cycle continues. as a cusper, I feel like I get to be part of that. Like I, I definitely am part of, um, the meme culture thing, man. I, I mean, I don't I think I haven't noticed twice. that you do. The pendulum swings for you. You're like, you take the parts you want, you discard the parts you don't want. So exactly. I can't work like this. This environment is not, <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> I'm not being consistent safety. enough. <laughs> yeah. Isn't right. <laughs> Never know whether you're going to be encountering millennial Vera or Gen, Gen X. Vera. Right. And I'm uh, like, is she a digital native today or not? I don't know. You know what I need? <laughs> I need a, I need a little thing that I can put in, put in here probably in the, I haven't played with all of the tools in Riverside yet, but I think there's some way that I can just like pop up a little screen sometimes that just is that Oregon Trail screen. You have died of dysentery. <laughs> So in those moments where I'm just like, no, steadfast, I'm neither. I'm just going to pop up. You're, you're, you're 100% in the middle. That six-month period where they're, <laughs> they were just like, we're not deciding. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and that's also what's crazy. Like the earliest stages of trying to define that generational cohort, they had like backed it up to 74, 75, 76 as like yeah. that's the new beginning of, of the generation. And then I think it just became very important to people that they were like graduating from high school in 2000. And so then it becomes like 82 ish. Yeah. Um, but it's always been fuzzy. And I, and I really, my mind was blown the other day when I realized that the census only had one generational cohort defined and it was boomers. And I feel like 
well, there it is. Like, <laughs> there's the center point of our argument that, like, actually all these stories are about boomers the and boomers, reactions yeah. to that group. Um, but I think it's it's extremely positive to have an organization like this saying it's really only useful sometimes or it's useful in tandem with these other factors and that the only way we're going to get clarity is to stop oversimplifying. I, to be honest, like I'm so encouraged by this shift from them that I, I, I hope it means that it's like harder for lazy reporters, sorry reporters, but lazy reporters just go millennials be like when they're not seeing things presented that way, when the cuts yeah. aren't being shown to them in that regard. I when they actually have to say, joke if I didn't, if I wasn't so encouraged by that, yeah, I agree. yeah, yeah, and like. And, and I mean, maybe that's me being overly optimistic. Maybe they'll just go, well, let's see, I can do the math, <laughs> you know, collapse these two age groups together and that's millennials. And I'll just add up the numbers and say millennials be like. Yeah. Oh, they're, I mean, the BuzzFeeds of the world. I mean, maybe BuzzFeed's not still producing news, but the, no, the, the quick producing organizations of the world will still do that. And they yeah. did it before and they, manip- they didn't manipulate the numbers. They just were sloppy in a lot of times with the numbers. And with right. the generations and with the years. And what's the difference? It's just math. Yeah. So, it kind of matters. Yeah. I mean, I think an interesting place to have a second conversation with them would, would be around some of these ways that these stereotypes and oversimplifications are harmful, even if not at the individual level. I think one of the ways that they're harmful is in policy and, and decision-making. It's like, who do we lock out of the conversation? Who do we not give benefits to? Who do we not allow access to various systems? Because we've decided they don't need it because our understanding of that group is all the affluent side or it's all – even when she was talking about – you know, I had seen that data too about the the picture of young people in the 60s in their support or lack of support for the uh, war in Vietnam – like that's known to political scientists that it was not this huge wave of young people that um, everybody was against the war, but it's not talked about. And I think one of the things that we're once again experiencing, and I'm sure you sitting in a university are experiencing this in a very unique way is like, you know, the conservative side of the political spectrum in the U S although frankly, everybody I think has a certain amount of anxiety, let's say, about what happens at college campuses, because there is this idea that college campuses are these incubators for what society is going to be like later, and that this is where the future leaders come from. And so if they're already infected by the woke mind virus, then it's over for America. Or if they're getting too much, what is it, like, um, instead of reconstruction, Oh God, what, what's the alternative phrase for it? The, the pro-Confederate version of, of that. Anyway, there's a word for it and it's not uh, reconstruction. It's, it's like re something or other, but I can't think of what it is now. Um, but that kind of reconstruction didn't work out because just, you know, black people really weren't up to this whole democracy thing. So it's a good thing we had Jim Crow, <laughs> like that, that we're not teaching that version of the post-Civil War period or whatever, like whatever your anxieties are of, we're too conservative. We're not conservative enough. I think obviously the right is far more anxious about what's going on at college campuses than the left mm-hmm. is. I think the left once again has a kind of fait accompli attitude about it of like, well, people with college educations tend to be more liberal. And it's like, well, until you start breaking down the demographics underneath that <laughs> and start to right. discover that not so much. But like, 
that's one of the things when when she was you know saying like the focus on Gen Z is already very much on the affluent. Um, you know, you and I've been banging this drum since episode one of like this is this is a story about white affluent college bound or college educated millennials and not about everybody else's experiences. And the way that I think it is damaging is is in the narrative. It is in the way that we talk about politics and we talk about demographics and we talk about groups of people inside this country and around the world and like what do we want to do for them and how do we want to interact with them and what are our expectations of them? How do we expect them to behave? And when they don't behave that way, are we refreshed? Are we like, aha, it doesn't all have to be like the public narrative? Or do we say, no, 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 I've been told there was a box and I would like you to get back in the box. Right. Oh, you were never in the box to begin with? Too bad. Climb in because I'm not Choose dealing the box. with you. It could be this one Choose or this the box. One. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like that's part of what comes through in um, some of the conversations we've had with Christina and, and, and Beanish as well. But in any event, I'm very excited about this development. I'm very excited that they were willing to talk to us. Hey, our first like real like research guest. So exciting. Sorry, Paul Soldera, you were a real research guest. I should yeah, be so mean about that. Don't but you're him. no pew. I think even he would agree. Pew, 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 pew. Um, All right. I have to jump. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. I have to stop fangirling about this. No, Thank you don't. I do a little. All right. I'll uh, see I you other things bit. today. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. You've got to come down now. Exactly. See you later, Adam. Next time on In the Demo, we return to our previous schedule and bring you my interview with Bina Shah, a writer and award-winning growth marketer who talks about how she has seen the tech industry use generational segments to flatten people and experiences, both in the workplace and in their growth marketing strategies. And we talk a bit about her own millennial experience at the intersection of a narrative extremely focused on individualism and individual experiences and expression, and an immigrant culture that focuses more on family, community, and collective experiences. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Piano, with support from The Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license. <laughs>